Oh, good morning. Uh, I know I've, I've met quite a few new people. I see new faces out there. My name's Todd. I'm the lead pastor here at Cornerstone, and we are glad you're here. Um, you came at an interesting time. We're in the midst of a series asking the question, just what does it mean to be human? Now, on one level, the reason that I really love that is I feel we're at a time unlike any other time in the history of at least us as a culture where people are trying to figure this out at a rate that is kind of bizarre and weird if you're going to be, if I wanted to be really honest about it. In fact, we've gotten to a point where humans can define their own humanity. We can decide what our humanity is, what it looks like, what we want it to be. And it's kind of become this free-for-all on kind of deciding what it is. But I think what's so cool about going into this is, is that we're answering questions. And I thought over the last four weeks, Christian just did a really good job of helping us to understand in a greater way, not so much what we think about what humanity is, but what God says about what humanity is. But last week, it was, it was really fun for me to listen to everybody leave. And so while this one, these two people were walking out, and as they're walking out, and if this is you, I'm not making fun of you, so um, I'm making fun of all of us right now, okay? So I'm not laughing at you, I'm laughing at us. But as they started to leave, you know, the one looks at the other and just said, oh, I'm so glad we're answering these questions. I've, I've just always struggled, like, what does it mean to be human? Like, what does it mean? And then that person turned and looked at the person and said, you know, like, what does it mean to be us? Now, anybody that knows me knows I tend to find funny things in everything. That's just how God's crafted me. And so as I'm sitting there, I started to kind of listen a little bit on this simple fact that isn't it funny? We're the only creatures in all of God's creation that would ever ask that. <laughs> right? I mean, it's odd that we're the only, the only creature that kind of doesn't know what it means to be us. Like I was sitting down, and this is the way I thought of it. <clears throat> I don't see lions sitting around having this crisis of wondering, what does it really mean to be a lion? <laughs> right? They're not sitting around with their buddies and going, bro, you wouldn't believe it the other day. I just seriously, I was pondering, what does it mean to be us? I don't think cows ever ponder like what it is that they're about, and they don't have existential questions of cowness in the grand ex extent of the universe. I don't think zebras ever wonder, am I black on white or white on black? <laughs> I don't think mama ducks waddle around with their little ducklings. And as they waddle around, they're thinking in the back of their heads of their progeny, I wonder what they're going to be when they grow up. <laughs> I don't think like there's antelope that suddenly wake up one morning, proclaim to everyone that's around them, I'm done roaming the plains. I want something more. I want something bigger. I'm sick of being hunted. I want to be the hunter. Only to find out in their endeavor that it's a poor existential endeavor. I don't think a dog has ever gone into therapy and said, What's dogness, really? But yet in the middle of all of it, we see humanity just plagued by this reality of what does it really mean to be human? And I think in a lot of ways, there's something unique about us that demands the answer, which is a good thing. But different people, as Christians have been talking about, have different ideas about what does it mean to be human. Some think that because we can think and form ideas and come up with something, well, then we must therefore be human. 
Some people think that, you know, because in some way we have emotion that allows us to share life in an experiential way, that's what makes us be human. Some people would say, no, because we have compassion, because we have empathy, because we have sympathy. That's what causes us to be a human. And so the question we've been trying to wrestle through and what does it mean to be human is, does creativity make us human? Does compassion make us human? Does emotion make us human? And I think one of the things that we've realized is while people, many people have different ideas, it's always strange to me that no one stops and asks the one who created us, what does it mean to be human? In fact, that's what Christians have been trying to do is to get us to look into God's word and to realize that the Bible has the only comprehensive answers to what does it mean to be human. It answers those questions. So for the last four weeks, Christians have been showing us what it means to be human is defined by the Bible. Now, the beauty of what the Bible does with that is it says about us as humans is that we are, and just think about this for a second, created in the image of God. In some way, God, in spite of, or in sight of all of creation, looked at it and said, this unique group of my creation is going to bear something that is incredible. No doubt he gave us creativity. No doubt he gave us the capacity for compassion and emotion. But he gave us all those things that humans can produce. But what makes us human, whether we are someone that's inside of our mother's womb, even to the very last point in which I draw my last gasp, what makes us human is not what we can do, but who who we are, we were created in the image of God, and that is mind-blowing. I mean, when seriously is the last time you just stopped and looked at yourself in the mirror and went, shut up? I mean, looking at me, you can see I do that a lot, all right, but I'm talking to us, I realize I'm, never mind. It's just this way in which, like, When have you just stopped and thought the God of the universe created us in his image? It should cause us to have an existential like break in our heads where we go, why in the world would God ever do that? Christian then laid out this reality of what it means then to to now be these people that are created in the image of God, created to be the place in which God himself would dwell in perfection in and amongst his people, to then be marred by sin. And we talked about the implications of sin and the way it just twisted everything. And then we talked about the reality of Jesus, that if you want to know the answer to every question in and around what does it mean to be human, the only answer is found in one person, and that is Jesus Christ and him alone. And then last week, he laid out for us this idea of Jesus Christ and justice. That Jesus Christ, when we talk about justice, he is the one that is truly the answer of the good life. We talked about aesthetics, but Jesus Christ is the one. Now, when my wife left last week's message, like she's left all of the rest of them, she left and she was massively encouraged. I was preaching in the Spanish congregation for the last few weeks, so I didn't get to hear it. But she was talking about it, and I said, so what, what challenged you the most? And then she started to gush for the next few minutes about all that she'd learned, and then I had a total problem, which is me and my own manhood between Christian, and everything turned out okay. I had an existential problem, but now I'm good. <sighs> but soon she looked at me, and she said this. It was great, but to be honest with you, I don't know what to do with it and how to live it in my life. 
Now, the problem wasn't Christian. He did a phenomenal job. He totally built into these messages, bringing us to this point that we need to understand that there's a lot of wrong thinking in who we are and what we understand about humans that has to be deconstructed before now we can lay out biblically what does it look like and what are we called to do in light of this person that God has created us to be. And so now today, what we're going to start to do, and we're going to do this for the next two weeks, so I'm going to go this week, Chris Hayes is going to go the next week, is we're going to try to land this series based upon all this way in which Christian has deconstructed then reconstructed some ideas in our head. And this is going to be my big idea today that I'm going to try to walk through. And I know it's kind of wordy, but just go with me for a little bit. I believe that what we're going to learn looking at the book of Ephesians today is the intent of God in humanity will not be fully experienced until Christ returns. But God is progressively growing and manifesting himself in and through the church as a foretaste of his intent so that those without God's presence might observe, be confronted, and invited into life in and around Christ. Now, you're going to need your Bibles today. So if you didn't bring Bibles, I would suggest that you raise your hands because we're going to be going through those. As you raise your hand and ask for a Bible, guys are going to be bringing them down because you may not realize it, but you need to buckle in. Because today, I'm going to preach the entire book of Ephesians in less than four hours. So it's going to be awesome, yeah. So buckle in. This is going to be awesome. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm kidding. It's only going to be three hours. But just <laughs> sit in there. We're going to look at the book of Ephesians. And I'm going to try to take this big concept here that's kind of wordy a little bit. And we're going to try to break it down and really ask the question about, okay, in light of everything that Christian has preached now, we're going to ask the same question my wife asked is what do we do? How do we live this particular reality? Now, again, one of the things that Christian did that I thought was so good is he laid out this idea that we're not the first people to ask this question. We're not the first humans or philosophers to come along and ask the question of what does it mean to be human? And last week, what we did is we looked at Genesis 11, if you remember right. And looking at Genesis 11, we talked about the fact that there was this act that they committed that was so great against God. But I think one of the things that hit me last week is that every action first has a question that then results in an action. The question actually of being asked, what does it mean to be human? So I don't care if you're a high school student in here, a college student, if you're somebody that's in your 20s, 30s, 40s, or even somebody that's verging into the 80s or 90s, whatever you might be on that spectrum, whatever we think in our head about what does it mean to be human, and even Christian's concept of ascetic, what it means to live the good life, will always come to action. That question, as we ask it, will always eventually come out in our lives. Then when we talk about it in this place, these somebody must have, living in Babel at the time, thought, you know, what does it mean to be human? And everything now from this action came about. Every time people ask it, there's an answer. And whenever there's an answer, there's an action that always comes behind it. We have to keep that in our head. So what was their action which they kind of moved towards? What well, we see in three through four, this was the action, and we caught this last week, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, look at this, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, which there's a huge idea about that. They really weren't building a giant temple. They were building this idea, a temple on top of this particular tower. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
They asked the question of what does it mean to be human, and their action was to build something and make a name for themselves. Anytime we ask a question about what does it mean to be human without a correct understanding of who God is, we will always, in and of ourselves, create an action which makes a name for ourselves. I don't care if it's a two-year-old that I have, a seven-year-old, an 11 and 11, a my wife's 39-year-old, or me, I'm kidding, she's not, but she's actually 29, or a 46-year-old me, because I met her when we were, she was really young. It doesn't matter who it is or how old you are, is that every question whereby which it is devoid of God, it will always lead to a response or an action that says, I'm going to make a name for me. The problem with that is that's not how God created us. God didn't create us to make a name for ourselves. He created us to make a name for him. And the promise is, as we make a name for him, he will now make a name uniquely for us. So what happens is, and they're experiencing it right here, is that after they had done that, they did what Paul talked about in the book of Romans. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And exchanging a truth of God for a lie, what they ended up doing then was worshiping and serving creation rather than the creator. They were what Christian talked about, entering into foolishness. The only outcome of every single human being that is apart from God. As you work through this a little bit further, by the time we come to the book of Ephesians, to understand the book of Ephesians, you have to understand that Paul, for him, everything was moving towards an incredible end. When Paul thought about the good life, he thought down the road in the reality of something that's talked about in Ephesians 1, and this is the fact that Jesus Christ will reign and rule in his world and his creation. Paul understood the good life was Paul not in charge, but Jesus Christ fully in charge of all things. So for him, the amazing end or the good life that he's talked about, by the time we get to 121, is that Jesus Christ, this one who is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, that is for Paul the good life. Everything is and will fully, we talk about in verse 22, be placed under his feet. And from his fullness, it talks about there, is that everything, Jesus is currently filling all of the heavens and all of creation. And Paul called this movement, by the time you come to verse 23, by the time everything finally lands, the all and all, and I love that. The all and all speaks of the intent of God. See, here's the thing about God. Remember I said earlier, what we believe about humanity and the good life, we were always moved towards. What God believes about humanity and the good life, I promise you, he will accomplish. All of the universe and everything is moving this direction. And Paul said, I'm going to put my whole life behind that. Now, right now, I'll be honest with you, it doesn't feel like Christ is reigning, does it? 
Man, you just feel inside of culture in our world that it's not that way. But Paul was convinced that Jesus isn't just future, but he is currently right now reigning and ruling and bringing everything now to his good plan. And what is so nutty in chapter one about what he's going to say in here is not that Jesus reigns supreme, but in some mysterious way, you and I are going to become a part of verse 10, the whole point of the book of Ephesians, united uniting things in Christ, things in heaven and things in earth, this whole process includes you and I. In fact, he calls it at the very end of chapter, two, chapter one, the church. You and I, everyone that is in here right now, is all a part of bringing about God's good reign and rule, whether you know it or not. We are involved in the greatest thing ever. Now, again, let me ask a question. How many of you woke up this morning and just all of a sudden looked in the mirror and went, I'm involved in the greatest thing ever. Children. Why? Because our problem is, is we don't believe that ultimately the good reign and rule of Jesus is the good thing. If you don't believe me, ask friends, ask spouses if you believe the good reign and rule of Jesus is the good thing. I really at many times believe Todd, his good reign and rule is the good thing. And Paul was going to come into this and challenge this. See, everything that God decides to do is going to veer towards that. And this was so mind-altering for Paul as he wrote this particular reality that he needs to pray, starting in verse 15, and I believe going all the way to the end of chapter 3, he is praying and just thinking about the immensity for a second. It's no wonder he prays. Jesus is right now, he is right now in the process of eliminating hatred and oppression and racism and murder and harm, even if it doesn't feel like it. He is right now giving humanity, even they don't, though they don't know it, even in our most evil moments, he is bringing about and bringing about this moment in which he's going to give humanity everything that they've longed for. In fact, I would say this, we can't even begin to imagine the good life that Jesus has in store for us because we can't imagine a life without mess. But could you imagine just for a moment if we lived in a life that had no mess? Imagine waking up tomorrow and you knew that the whole day would just be good. Now, after having an existential dilemma at that moment, you would start to realize that that is the good life that Jesus has in store for us. Paul was trying to tell these people that they were a part of this, that they were a part of God's purpose and plan, and we are too. But the natural question my wife asked, and I think it's really key here, is that how do we live this in our lives? Okay, God, I get it. That thing's huge. Now, what do I do with it? And what I'm going to do now, working through the book of Ephesians, is I'm going to start landing on some of these things and beginning to show you what does it look like to live this reality. Now, what he's going to do is, and the way we have to think about this, and what we're doing is that God always intended his reign and his rule through us. That's the way it was from the very beginning of Genesis 126. 
And in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, what we see Paul doing is he showed them how he would turn those without God's presence in such a way from their foolishness and cleanse them from their sinfulness, all their defilement that they had so that God might now reign in them and now might be able to rule through them. We see this like in Ephesians 2, 5 through 7, where we understand now how he takes care of this defilement when it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Look at this. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us who are in Christ Jesus. That is the phenomenal end. And this is what I mean. Paul kept his mind on the phenomenal end. The solution is not obtained by any other means than by grace alone through faith alone, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Thus, when Jesus died on the cross, was raised from the grave, victory was guaranteed. And here's the thing that we have to look at. When Jesus Christ was raised from the grave, victory, and I would even say this, newness of new creation, broke into this world in ways that we will never begin to understand, but it broke into this world, making everything different. And for those of you that, knew, that know Jesus, you know this because the inbreaking happened in your personal life. Nothing in and of you, nothing because of a choice you made, but everything because of who God is. He reached down and he gave his grace to you, opening up your heart and your mind, revealing to you the grandness and greatness of Jesus. The new creation of God broke into your life. And now you are not the same person because of it. Now this is huge because now by the time that we get to verse 12, or verse 10, we see that his workmanship did something in us. It created us in Christ Jesus. Look at this. Four good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It was the breaking in of new creation. Now continue to answer this when we talk about this idea then of how are we supposed to live our lives. I would say it this way. If you don't know and follow Jesus then you need to know and follow Jesus. What is it that you're supposed to do? Today is the day that you're supposed to bend your knee. This whole reality in that 2, 1 through 10 is to tell the story that Jesus Christ died, he was buried, he rose again, he forgives sins, and he provides now the way for you to have a relationship with the God of the universe. And the only way that you can come to him is by faith through his grace. And let me just say this, no other way. If you don't know him today, what are you supposed to do? Bend your knee. I think what's also key is for Paul, the world in its present form for him is corrupted. But amongst those that come to Christ by faith alone, trusting in God's grace alone, here's the promise you can have according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. New creation has broken in. And it's a newness that I would say this is no longer defined by different races of people because by the time you get to chapter 2, verse 11, look down in your text. By the time I come to chapter 2, verse 11, instead of now all who are in Christ, we would say this way, are Jewish people. Now we're seeing that he's going to include in these Gentiles. In other words, God now isn't just going to fix this problem between me and God, but he's going to also fix this problem. Now, do you know how many people have said, you know, 
I just want like peace in the world. There is a way and there's only one way and it is through Jesus. And what he did in and through the church is so key here. In verse 13, all those people that used to be far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. He did this so now he might create in himself, watch this, a new man in place of two, so making peace. In other words, not only is he creating peace between me and God, but now he's going to create peace between me and humanity in this new thing called the church. Not only that, he reconciled all who come to Christ by faith through grace to God in one body through the Christ, through, or through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And not only that, in Christ, we're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now just think about this. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the relationship between God and man broken. In Genesis 11, we see the relationship between man and man broken. And what is Paul saying? God, in his greatness, in filling and manifesting this entire universe, not only solved the problem between man and God, but now also is saying he has solved the problem between man and man. In Jesus Christ now, there is no more hostility. In Jesus Christ now, we aren't distinctive groups of people. In Jesus Christ, we are no longer black, white, red, yellow, you know, all those different things. We're no longer male and female. We're no longer slave or nor rich. We're no longer defined by any of those things. Our only definition is Jesus and Jesus alone. He has not only cured this problem, but he's cured this problem. That means what he's doing, now just stop and think about this for a while. He's not only dismantling the fall, what happened between God and man, but he's dismantling the fall, what happens between people. One by one, as each person comes and embraces Jesus Christ, he is now absolutely laying a beautiful fork down in the middle of the road and looking back at Genesis 3 and everything that Satan had intended to somehow hinder this relationship with God. But every time a person embraces Jesus, there's a mockery of Genesis 3. Every time now, groups of people gather together, and I get, we're, we're mostly white in here. Seen Valley is mostly white. But did you realize when a church gathers together with rich and poor and male and female and people from all groups and races and different classes inside of our world, that we mock Satan in what he tried to do and accomplish in and through Genesis 11? The only place in the world that we're ever going to see true peace until Jesus Christ returns is in his church. Does that always happen? No. Because the thing, if you remember right, this is something that's progressive, that's moving along in its whole effort. Well, that's great, Todd. If it's not just personal, if it's something that's bigger than me, then what does this make it? Because my brain is hurting a little bit. Your brain should hurt. It should hurt because in Ephesians, he calls it a mystery. It's a mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise that is in Christ Jesus in and through the gospel. It is what Paul committed himself to. It's why he became a slave of Christ, chapter 3, verse 1. He had the whole goal given to him as an apostle to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. 
Now we're going to take and stretch your mind a little further. He doesn't just intend this to be worked out between me and God and me and humanity, but now all of a sudden he says, as this takes place, as God's people are now renewed, as new creation breaks in in the relationship between God and man, and new creation breaks in between man and man, we start to mock the demonic realm. Look what it says up there. Rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, as we all are the church, as God's designed the church to be, we also mock the demonic realm. That should stop us for just a second and go again. No way. I'm involved in not just something between me and God and me and one another, but God now is using us in a powerful way to, as the Bible talks about, confront and make known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places that Jesus Christ is king. You all are involved is the greatest and the greatest thing ever. Now, if your brain is hurting, like I said, take heart. Paul had to pray at the beginning, but now watch this. He also has to pray for us again to get this. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul just says, let me pray for you again. Now let me recap. Jesus Christ is making himself known as king. He is making himself known as king, not just in this physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. Everything is moving towards the day in which he will not only now be making himself king, but he will be fully king. And those of us that know Jesus now can bank our life on everything that is to come, believing that that world has already broken in. We already sit in the heavenly places. And in believing that, that that is the good life, that that is where we can wrap our lives around. If you want to really have action that matters in this world, you need to believe that reality. What do I do as the church? I bank everything on that day. Everything. I bank everything not only on that day, but the belief that Jesus Christ is already king. You can live with that confidence. But the ability to do far more than we ask or think, one of the things that I've always found is people generally want to pray that prayer all the time, but they don't want to get involved in God's mission. They want God to get involved in their mission. He never promises to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think to fulfill what happened at Babel to make a name for ourselves. He did it so the glory might resound to Jesus Christ in and amongst the church, in amongst those that bear his image and are indwelled by him with his presence. This prayer is not for people, for personal missions of life, but for the mission 
And while it may never ultimately be fulfilled in this age, everything is unstoppably moving this way. Newness is broken in. Everything is being made new. There is nothing in which Jesus Christ is not going to reign over, even if it happens slowly. And we are to live this in our lives by coming to Christ by faith alone, by truly believing that this has happened. And then like the apostles, here's the key for us. Commit our lives to it. I mean, just stop for a second. I mean, just, just in your own heart, like, just wrestle with this. Do you believe this is the greatest thing ever? Just think for a second. Do you believe that the mission that we're involved on, where Jesus is to be made king and is being made king and will one day fully be made king, do you believe that is the greatest thing ever? If I believe that is the greatest thing ever, then Paul's point is, is go ahead and shape your life completely around it. Go for it. If you're somebody in here that's in high school right now, I know you're being bombarded all of the time, being told that you have to go get certain things. And I'm not saying don't go to college. I'm not saying don't get a job because then you don't get to eat and don't getting to eat really stinks. But you're being told all these things about what is the good life. And I'm here to tell you, if you're in high school right now, if you're in college right now, the good life is not what this world is telling us. The good life is the good reign of Jesus Christ. And you can make your life about that. If you're in your 20s right now and getting married, right, and you're all giddy and happy and you think everything's going to turn out all right and I'm here to destroy your world. No! You don't have to make your life about the perfect marriage and the perfect kids and the perfect house and the perfect job and the whatever else you got there. You can make your life about the good reign of Jesus. And I promise you, when you stand before Jesus one day, you will not regret it. If you're in 30s and starting to experience kids entering into their tweens, I'll pray for you because me too. As your kids go through the ebbs and flows of life and this weird thing for us to somehow feel like we've got it all together and we have them in every sport and everything and every little aspect of life is planned out and we think if we can just get this thing managed and complete and perfect, then finally we will have the good life. I'm here to tell you that is not the good life. The good life is the good reign and rule of Jesus both now and forevermore. If you're in 40s and a young whippersnapper like me, Entering into your midlife crisis as your children are getting ready to leave home. And you look at your children and you think, who raised these punks? No. No. But you know what I'm saying? Weird things happen in high school and college, don't they? We can define ourselves by all those things, or we can define ourselves by the good reign and rule of Jesus. As you get ready to retire, those of you that are really old in your 50s and 60s, you don't have to have a retirement that's defined by going off and playing golf and doing all these things to self-satiate. If you're going to play golf, there's nothing evil about golf. The only thing evil is shopping. But (laughs) you don't have to retire like the world retires. 
You can retire believing that the good reign and rule of Jesus is now, both now and being made now and forevermore. You don't have to retire like the rest of the world. Those of you that are facing the end of your life, the people are somehow putting you out to pasture. You're not out to pasture. As long as Jesus Christ is, he- is reigning as King Supreme, no one is out to pasture. See, if I make my life about this, doesn't that make everything different? It has point and purpose. And that is why in chapter four, we see this, what Paul does. He comes along to them and he says, in light of this amazing truth, I'm going to ask you to do something high schooler. I'm going to ask you to do something college student, 20s, 30s, 40s, all the way up to whatever it is to the point where you're taking your last gasp. I'm going to ask you to do something in light of this amazing good life that I have in store for you that I'm bringing to bear right now. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In other words, let me translate it in our today vernacular. In light of everything I've written, go for it. Make it real. Don't play games around this thing. Make this thing the center of your life. In fact, that worthy, what it, it doesn't mean like somehow I'm supposed to make something of my life like as if I'm this incomplete person. It is literally what it means. It was always spoken of scales, bringing something into a balance or equilibrium. In other words, really what he's saying is I want you to take all these things that I've talked about. If you want to know what it is that you're supposed to do in your life, I want you to take all of those things and I want you to bring them into your life and I want you to make them real. I don't want you to just get together as a church and play games. I don't want you to just get together as a church and talk about these high theological things with no purpose. What I want you to do is I want you to make these truths real. Now, what he goes after is so interesting. In 4, 1 through 6, he starts to talk about this idea that the way that now we're going to live our lives, to answer my wife's question, the key reality of 4, 1 through 6, if you want to know how it is that we're to live our lives, he says, be a church that lives in unity. When he comes to 4, 7 through 16, he knew that there was going to be a constant impact between a world that we live in, and so therefore this church needed to receive gifts from the sun. And so he says, as you receive these gifts from the sun, understand that you're powerful, but I want you to pull all of those gifts together in such a way that Jesus Christ is put on display. Church, that's what I want you to do. That's what it means to live for me. When you get to verse 17 in chapter 4, there's a distinctive way of life that we're supposed to live contrary to the world, not so much sitting there saying that we're better. We are not better than the world that doesn't know Jesus. The only distinction between us and them is somewhere in there, God gave us his grace, and they have not, for whatever reason, God's choosing, received his grace yet. We are not better than them. But he says, I do want you to live different than them. I want you to live different than them in such a way that I know that their minds are darkened, but you learned Christ differently. I want you to put off the old self, and I want you to take that reality of Jesus Christ and in his inbreaking resurrection, and I want you to live differently in front of this world. I want you to live in such a way that you confound the world. In 5.1, if you notice it in there, if you look in your Bible, it talks about this reality that we're supposed to now be imitators of God. In other words, now he's saying to them, what I want you guys to do is to understand that I want you now to look and feel and sound like the one that you know truly be the image bearer that God's designed you to be. 
5.15, don't snooze. No, 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 don't snooze. You got to keep your head on a swivel because the world we live in is dangerous and it's complex and our tendency is to live as unwise and, and even as foolish. But no, we can now be the people, he says, when we wake up, be the people that live for God's purpose and plan, 5.15 through 17. We don't have to be the ones anymore that get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. We don't have to go through the same world anymore. But instead, we can be filled with the Spirit, which means open up your sails, trim them in such a way that the Spirit of God blows you where he intends you to go. When my wife asked the question, how is it that I'm supposed to live this? Paul would say, like this. Comes along in verse 21, and he says this to him, submit to one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you want to know, church, how we're supposed to live in such a way that we manifest and put God on display, he says, put yourselves like Jesus underneath people. Choose to lower yourself. And in lowering yourself, use that opportunity to lower yourself in such a way that you now cause others to flourish. And then he lands it into real life. He lands it into marriage. He lands it into parenting. He lands it into masters and slaves. And, and don't think of masters and slaves like our country was, was with slavery. Paul would have been abhorred by what happened in our country with slavery. So that's not what we're talking about here. But he's saying now in light of all those things, make it real in your marriage. Make it real in your marriage because he says in there in chapter 5, your marriage is telling the world something about Jesus Christ in the church. Make it real in your parenting because, parent, do you understand that you are modeling for your son or your daughter who the father really looks like because you are manifesting fatherhood? Kids, act like the son. Lower yourself. Lower yourself like Jesus did and honor your parents. Now, for those of you in here that are kids, you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't do verses 1 through 3 in chapter 6. Let me just tell you this. Learn to do it. Masters and slaves, you're telling a story one day about how we're to work. Now, let me try to land the punch a little bit in this. I think the key aspect that he's really moving towards, and I think this is why he starts to pray for them in 6.10 through 18. Let me just say this really simple. My wife's not here, but I'll, I'll look at her when I say this. Her question is, what am I supposed to do now? You ready for this? After everything I've said, if you need to hold on to the bottom of your chair, go ahead. This is going to be complex. Be the church. Just be the church. Everything that he's talked about is just being the church. Be this glorified one that Jesus Christ looks at us and calls us his beloved bride. Be the church that operates in these ways that confound the world. Just be the church. Be the church in such a way that people identify that there's something unique about you. Be the church so that others wonder what in the world that makes you so distinct. And here's the crazy part about it. While we will never change this world in this particular time until Christ returns, the church can bend culture when the church is the church, like a blacksmith can bend metal one little blow at a time. I don't know how many of you watch this particular show, and I don't even can't think of the name of it, but it's all about blacksmithing and making swords. Anybody know what the name of that show is? Yeah, loser. That's the loser with me. 
No, I'm just kidding. Oh, I love that show. And everything that's happening in the making of this sword is one blow at a time. You don't make this sword in one moment. The sword is just made in one blow of a time, making one dent at a time over and over. And I would say the church is no different. It's that God's presence as it comes to barren culture, when the church is just the church, it makes a blow. As we just act like we're supposed to act, and I think this is God's main plan, We land the blow into this world. And as we land the blow into this world, we start to change and shift culture, not because there's anything special in us, but because the power of God working through his people. Israel always made its biggest mistakes when it tried to operate without God. The church always makes its biggest mistakes when it tries to be something that it's not. We are the church. And if you're a part of Cornerstone, here is what's nutty. You're a part of the greatest organization ever. Not Cornerstone. The church. The church right now is operating all over the world in every continent that there is on this planet. The church for the last 24 hours has worshipped the living God. Praise has resounded to the king. And do you realize that 2,000 years ago, there was only one place in all of the world that was resonating to the king. But the church is like yeast. As it sits there and it comes into a community, it flows itself into individuals and families and communities and neighborhoods. As it starts to get out there, it leaves its blow on the world. And everywhere the church has gone, the true church, I'm not talking about that fake church, the true church, everywhere the church is gone, it has been culture, and Jesus Christ has been declared as Lord. You are involved in the greatest thing ever. And that's why Paul prayed again. Pray for us. Pray for them. Pray. So what is Cornerstone supposed to do? Be the church. Does the church pray? Then we pray. Does the church help one another in our marriages? We're going to start a class. When is the class? Is it already started? I already forgot. So it's going to be a marriage class on the 22nd. If you want to now land a blow in the culture, dive into the marriage class. We've got a finance class. We've got all these different things happening. We've got student ministry. We've got children's ministry. We've got all these different aspects of what Cornerstone does, but we do what we do to help the church be the church. Why? Because I want to see Jesus Christ change Simi Valley. Do you believe that the Spirit of God working through the church of God can change a city? I do. Paul did. And in this upcoming school year, let's go for it. Let's do it. If there's sin in your life, deal with it. If your marriage is off kilter, deal with it. If your parenting is off kilter, deal with it. If there's anything that's going on that's off kilter, deal with it. If you need relationships in your life, get involved in community, which all of us do. Whatever it is that you need, dive in there because when the church is the church, Jesus Christ changes things both here and I would even say this as we send people all over the world globally as well. Cornerstone, be the church. Amen.
Oh God, would you help us right now to believe that we're involved in the greatest thing ever. Father, I know I'm just trying to communicate these things. And it's going to require the Spirit of God to enliven us in our heart. God, would you help Cornerstone to truly be the church? Would you help high school students and college students and 20-somethings all the way up to whatever we've got here? Father, would you help us to truly see the grandness and the greatness of what you're doing? Would we truly now begin to wrap our lives all around what you're doing? Would we help one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, confront one another? Father, would we do whatever it takes to be the church, Father, for our city? Would Cornerstone be the church along with all the other good churches in Simi Valley, to bend this culture in such a way that more and more people resound with the goodness of Jesus in their personal lives, in their homes, in their schools, in their businesses, in their recreation, in their sports. Father, would you do a miracle in Simi Valley? But Father, not because we're trying hard in and of ourselves, but because through the power of your spirit, we are being the church. Father, help us to be the church, I beg you. In your precious name we pray, amen.